So the painting you're looking at behind me is called An Angel Awakens the Prophet Elijah, and it's by an artist named Juan Antonio Frias. Um, and honestly, when I was doing some research, uh, I found this, and I thought, well, that's cool, because I'm going to talk about this story for a minute. Um, although, kind of ironic, the, uh, the painting really doesn't give a very good representation. I promise the angel looked absolutely nothing like that. Um, Elijah was under a broom tree, and just so you know, that's not a broom tree. So, I have no idea if Elijah looked like that, but based on the other two you know, main things in the painting... I'm thinking that he must have been bald and clean shaven, you know, so I don't know, we'll see. Um, but, but it's, I thought, you know, a good illustration kind of of what was going on in the story. And if you don't remember that story, you're, you would find it in 1 Kings 18 and 19. And Elijah was a prophet and he had been on the run because Ahab, the king, had a wife named Jezebel. Remember Queen Jezebel? Well, she was not a very nice person. She was a Baal worshiper. And if you're not sure who Baal is, um, Baal's basically Satan. Um, and they were really, really um, terrible in some of their rituals. This is the group who were literally taking their own children and burning them alive as sacrifices to Baal. It was a horrible, horrible uh, religion, if you want to call it that. And Queen Jezebel's been hunting down the prophets, people who were good Jews and killing them. So Elijah's already been on the run. And make a long story short, at one point he challenges all of the prophets of Baal to like a, a contest. And this is the easiest way to describe it. The story is actually really, really cool. You should go read it. Um, but essentially what they do is they get together and he says, okay, you're going to do your thing and I'm going to do my thing and we're going to see whose God shows up. Because you say that Baal will show up and I don't think he's going to, but my God's going to show up for me. So they, they build an altar, and the Baal worshipers, there's 450 of these prophets, and they build this fire, and they cut up an ox, and then they, they put it on top of this altar, and they are on the fire, and they're supposed to call down fire from Baal to burn up the offering. And of course, they start, you know, calling out to Baal, but is Baal real? Right? There is no actual Baal, and so nothing happens. The dead ox just lays there, and there is no fire. And, and so pretty soon, Elijah actually kind of starts taunting them. Maybe Baal's asleep. You know, maybe he took a vacation, literally. Uh, there's some great dialogue in this story, but uh, Elijah starts taunting them, and so they start yelling louder. Yeah, why don't, maybe he's asleep. Pray louder. And they do, and they, they still, nothing happens, right? The, the ox is still there. And then they go deeper into their rituals. So they used to cut themselves. And so these, these prophets of Baal start literally severing their own, like, you know, veins and stuff and bloods everywhere, trying to get Baal to burn up the ox, but never happens. Nothing happens. So, so Elijah goes, well, let me, let me show you how, how this works. And he goes out and he builds this little you know, stack of firewood, and he takes 12 stones, one representing each uh, of the tribes of Israel, and he builds this little pile of stones, and he puts some wood on it, and then he cuts up the ox, and he puts the ox on it, and he says, okay, so we're going to do a couple things different here. The first thing he does is he digs like a trench around his offering, 
And he says, hey, you guys, go, go get water. These big, you know, decanters of water. Go pour water on top of it. And then, you know, get some more water. So they literally are dousing the wood and everything with water until they basically have a moat. So he's dug this trench. It's like a moat around his fire pit. And it's full of water. And then he steps back, of course, and says, I'm paraphrasing, show him how it's done, God. And fire from heaven comes down, burns up not just the ox, burns up all the wood, burns up all the water, everything. Just fire from heaven burns it all up. So at this point, the Israelites who have been watching the competition, um, Elijah says, okay, now round up those 450 Baal prophets and kill them. And they do. For the first time, Israel actually kind of acts justly, and they do what Elijah tells them to do, and they put all these prophets to death. But Ahab witnesses this whole thing. The king sees what happens, and so he goes back to his wife and tells her what happened. But she's really in charge. She's the one who's really running the show. And so Jezebel sends a message to Elijah. I heard what you did to all my prophets. I'm going to get you. I'm going to kill you. Now, she'd been trying to do that for years. But for whatever reason, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for Elijah. And he becomes terrified. And he literally runs for a full day out in the wilderness. And he finally, exhausted, lays down under a broom tree, which looks nothing like the one in the painting. Think mesquite tree. And so here Elijah is, he's asleep, he's exhausted. And at one point he wakes up and there's an angel over him. And the angel has bread prepared and water. And the angel says, hey, eat and drink. You need more rest. You've got a long journey ahead of you. And so he gives Elijah the food, the water, and Elijah goes back to sleep. And later again, the angel wakes him up and feeds him and gives him water again and says, okay, now you're good to go. You've got a long journey ahead of you and he sends him off and Elijah will basically travel for the next 40 days to get to where he's going but this idea of the angel is really what today is about because that angel refreshes Elijah he gives Elijah what he needs not just physically he needed the food he needed the water but he also needed to be restored mentally and spiritually, because Elijah literally is scared to death, okay? And that story reminded me of something that happened to me when I was a kid. So my two brothers are 10 and 11 years older than I am. And we used to play street football all the time. Well, they're, you know, by the time I'm 9 or 10 years old, they're adults. You know, they're big, strong men. And I'm a kid. Even though I was a big kid, I'm still a child. And they were adults. And... We used to, you know, play back and forth and the, the two older brothers typically would, you know, kind of pair off against each other and me and my stepbrother would kind of pair off against each other. But this day, that's not what happened. I go out for a pass. My, my oldest brother's my quarterback. I run for this pass and my other brother clotheslines me. And I mean, like it would have made the ESPN highlight reels. I, my feet were up in the air. In the middle of the street, this 20-year-old man clotheslines this 10-year-old kid. And I am on my back, on the ground, looking up at heaven, so to speak. And I am like dazed and confused. 
And I remember my other brother, Jeff, my older brother, first kind of chastising the brother that knocked me out, right? Like, come on, he's a kid, you know, what are you doing? And they both played legitimate college ball. I mean, these are big, strong men who know how to play this game. And I remember my other brother coming over to me, Jeff, and he reaches down, and he takes my hand, and he puts me back on my feet. Now, he didn't just help me up, he basically picked me up. But at that moment, he didn't just write me physically, he said something, I don't remember exactly what he said, but something like, come on, let's, let's go whoop your brother. You know, let's go win this game, kind of thing. And he righted me mentally as much as he did physically. Does that make sense? All right, and that's, that's what we're gonna be talking about today because these holy days we're about to discuss, they're meant to put us in the right place mentally and spiritually, okay? So Leviticus 23 verses one and two say this, the Lord spoke again to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. And then he goes on to list each of them and that's what we're gonna talk about right now. We're gonna talk about them kind of one at a time. And we're gonna start with the one that's just a few days away, and that's Passover, okay? So Passover is actually not a, um, a holiday that's a week long or even a day long, it's a single meal. Passover is actually just the Seder dinner, that's what they call it, it's literally a meal. Um, and the meal celebrates when the angel of God passed over the Israelites who were who were in Egypt. If you remember, there was that, the whole thing between Moses and Pharaoh and all the plagues that happened. Well, the last thing that God did to try to get Pharaoh's attention was the firstborn son of every household died. And God told Moses to do a specific, very specific ritual to take a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over the post of your door. And when the angel comes over to take every firstborn, they'll go right over your house. All of the Israelites will be protected as long as they have the blood of the lamb on their door. And that's what the Passover meal celebrates. It celebrates the passing over of the angel. Now, um, a Christian doesn't celebrate the holiday exactly the way a Jew would have. For example, um, if you're a Jew, you, at least at this time, you were supposed to give a physical sacrifice of a lamb in the temple. Well, the temple doesn't exist anymore, which is why, by the way, Jews don't still do animal sacrifices. If the temple was there, they actually still would do animal sacrifices, but the temple's not there anymore, okay? And of course, our ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, has already happened, okay? So we don't need to slaughter a lamb. That's already been done 2,000 years years ago, all right? <clears throat> so as Christians, we not only remember how God used the lamb to pass over Israel, we also take this time to remember how Jesus and his blood saved us. Does that make sense? All right, and this is pretty important. All of these holy days include two things. 
They all include a holy convocation, which I'll explain in a second, and they include a Sabbath. Now, the holy convocation thing, that's a spiritual gathering, okay? And the idea was not just that people would gather together, but that they would gather together to honor God and to spend time with God, all right? So if you get together as a group, like we are right now, and it's to celebrate God, that's a holy convocation. If you just get together and you're eating, you know, and doing other stuff, but it's not about God, then it's not a holy convocation, okay? And the Seder dinner is that. It is supposed to be a gathering of people who are remembering God, okay? And that's why it's a holy convocation, even though it's just one meal. And then there's that Sabbath component. And that Sabbath component, of course, we know that you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day part, but there's more to it than that. And we'll talk about that as we kind of move down the path. Oh, and by the way, um, missing this Seder dinner is a pretty big no-no if you're a Jew, um, especially at this time. Numbers chapter 9, verse 13 records this. But the person who is clean and is not on a journey yet refrains from celebrating the Passover, that person shall then be cut off from his people because he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That person will bear the responsibility for his sin. All right, so this was a big deal. This was not a, ah, you know, what are you doing Friday night? Ah, I guess I'll go to the Passover dinner. No, 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 no. You absolutely, positively celebrated Passover, and generally that meant a trip to Jerusalem, if you were even ballpark close to Jerusalem, all right? Now, there is good news. We don't have to celebrate Passover anymore. We've been lifted from the burden of that, so you don't have to worry. You're not in trouble. You're not going to get cut off from your people, uh, but we'll kind of discuss that later. All right, the next one I want to talk about is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this is often confused with Passover because, it, first of all, they overlap one another. And people just think it's all one holiday. It's actually two separate holy days that are holy uh, uh, celebrations that overlap one another. So the day after Passover, Seder happens, the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts. Um, so here's the backstory. When... Moses was about to take his people out of Egypt. They didn't have a lot of time before they were going to leave. God told them what was about to happen, but they didn't have time to make bread because normally you add yeast to bread and it takes time to rise, and they didn't have time to do that. And so they made unleavened bread, bread without yeast. And so that's kind of the backstory of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but essentially what happens is for this week after Passover, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you're not supposed to eat anything that has yeast in it, okay? Now, for the Israelites, that primarily was bread. But what's interesting now is there's yeast in lots of stuff that we eat. Even the spices on the shelf, you go look at the bottle of spices, a lot of them have yeast in them, all right? And so the way it's celebrated today, if you're a Jew, for example, and you're celebrating this feast, you try to get all of the leaven, all of the yeast out of your house. For a week. So, I mean, some of it's easy, right? Okay, there's a loaf of bread. That's easy to figure out. But this is literally like, oh, there might be crumbs under the refrigerator that we need to find. 
We need to get all the spices out. We didn't get anything in the house out of the house that has leavening in it for a week. And that can be pretty challenging, okay? Because quite frankly, there's a lot of stuff. When you start looking around, it becomes kind of a family thing where, okay, let's figure out what has yeast in it and get it out of here. And the symbology is, it's like sin. You know, over and over the Bible uses yeast to symbolize sin, especially in the Old Testament. And so when you try to get all of the sin out of your life, it's hard. There's a lot of stuff that we do, right? That falls into the category of sin. So the process of trying to get all the yeast out reminds us how hard it is to get all of the sin out of our lives. During this feast, uh, the cool thing is, is that you will see not just this one, but all of them, all of them ultimately point to Jesus. This feast is the same because there is only one who can take all of the sin out of your life, and that's Jesus. So why would a Christian celebrate this? For exactly that reason. Just simply the, uh, the fact that Jesus has removed all of the sin from your life, if you follow him, Right? That gives us common ground. It, it, this, this feast literally points to Jesus and his elimination of sin in our lives. So again, Holy Convocation and Sabbath. They actually start and end with the Sabbath. Can't work, have to focus on God. Okay? Now, the, the next one is called the Feast of Weeks. And many Christians know this uh, which, by the way, in Hebrew is called Shavuot, as Pentecost, all right? So the Feast of Weeks is the same as what we call Pentecost. Um, Shavuot is literally the plural word of the, that means week, so it's weeks. So it's week of weeks. That's the literal transla translation. So it's literally a seven-week festival, seven-week feast, Okay? So it goes for 49 days. Seven weeks is 49 days. And if you think about it, what's 49 plus Passover, the day before the Feast of Weeks starts? That's 50 days, right? 50 in Greek is penta, and that's why Christians celebrate Pentecost. It's 50 days after Passover. And what happened on Pentecost? the day the Holy Spirit showed up, right? And by the way, that's why all the Jews were still in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came down on Peter and all the other apostles. And remember the fire, the, the tongues of fire came down on them. And then Peter got up and saved 3,000. He preached his very first sermon and 3,000 people followed Jesus that day. Well, if it hadn't been Shavuot, they wouldn't have been in town. So imagine you have to travel to Jerusalem for Passover. And if it took you two weeks to get to Jerusalem, you're not going to go two weeks back home, wait a few weeks, and then spend two weeks coming all the way back. You're just going to stay in town. And that's what people did. They would stay in Jerusalem for the whole 50 days. And that's why there were so many Jews there. It's amazing how God worked this whole thing out in advance, isn't it? All right, so that's where this holiday and our Christian holiday of Pentecost crossover. Um, and again, Holy Convocation and a Sabbath. You're just going to see that repeated over and over and over.
All right, the next one I think is very cool. Um, most call it the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes you'll call it, uh, hear it called the Feast of Booths, okay? Um, it's pronounced Sukkot. That's how you say it in Hebrew. But like um, the other holy days, this is a reminder of how God saves us. So here you have the Israelites. They're stuck in Egypt. They part, you know, God parts the Red Sea. They get away from Pharaoh. But now they're in the desert. And remember, they were in the desert for 40 years, right? A long time. And if you remember, they wandered in the desert. Remember that? That's what the Bible says they wandered. They literally moved around all the time. Well, you don't build houses if you're moving around all the time. And they essentially lived in tents. And the tents that they lived in looked very much like that, right? That's what a Jew would refer to as a booth or a tabernacle, okay? And so they would move around in these temporary tents, and every few days they'd pack up and move again, and they'd have to take the tent down and then move and then put it back up again. So during this feast, again, God always used these interesting um, things. He'll, he'll take something from our past and use it to remind us of his goodness. So what they do is, what they, the Jews do, is they literally build a tent outside their house. And some of them even will take the whole week and like make a camping trip out of it, go somewhere and camp in one of these for a week, okay? Most Jews just eat their evening meal there. But the whole idea is we're gonna spend the afternoon or evening meal in this tent outside to remind us of what our ancestors had to do and remind us how God saved us. Ultimately, that's what it's pointing to. But he uses this little ritual to help them kind of put themselves in their place and really understand what it would have been like, okay? Um, the word tabernacle, by the way, uh, is kind of a fancy word, but it's a simple word. It actually just means dwelling. And here, obviously, it's a temporary dwelling, but its implication is pretty powerful. And when you think about it, why would God, like for us here, why would he want us to leave our beautiful, permanent, sturdy house and go in the backyard and spend time in a not permanent, very temporary, tent-like structure, especially if it's windy, like it is right now, or raining? Why would he want us to do that? Well, he wants us to do that because he wants us to remember and really focus on who he is and how he takes care of us. And I want you to think about that word dwelling for a second. Where does God dwell? Well, originally he dwelled in the temple, right? When there was a temple, God dwelled in the temple. And then, after a while, he, when they were out in the wilderness, he dwelt with them in the wilderness. And when he sent his son, God literally dwelt with us on earth for 33 years. Right? He dwelt with us. Now, on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. We have become the tabernacle today. But I really want you to think about that word dwelling. Because who... Who lives in a tent? We do, obviously. 
But who else lives there? God lives with us there. But where, where does God normally live? Heaven, right? Right now, God the Father and Jesus are both in heaven. And what little we know about heaven is pretty amazing. All right, streets paved with gold, walls of the buildings like made of rubies, no pain, no sorrow, everything's perfect. These really cool angels flying around. I mean, it's an amazing place. And yet he comes and dwells with us. I mean, think about that. That would be like us saying, you know what? I'm going to come to the bottom of the sewer and live with you to show you how much I love you. It's really pretty incredible that God would choose to leave heaven and come and dwell with us. All right. The Feast of Trumpets. This one's actually pretty simple. This is Jewish New Year. All right. So their New Year does not start on our New Year. Theirs is actually in the middle. It's like July. But they call it the Feast of Trumpets because the first thing they do when it's when it's New Year for them is they blow these trumpets. And the trumpet is supposed to remind you, hey, today is the New Year. Focus on God. And unlike our celebration of New Year's, because think about what we celebrate, we celebrate what's to come, right? Isn't that kind of what we do? We have New Year's resolutions. It's like, whew, I'm so glad last year's over and we look forward to the New Year. Isn't that kind of the way we do it? It is not how the Jews do it. It is not how God told us to do it. He said, I don't want you to focus on the year to come. I want you to think about all the wonderful things I did for you in the last year. So for a Jew, it's about looking back at the last year and thanking God for all of the things he has done for us over the last year, okay? And according to Jewish tradition, Rosh Hashanah, which is, by the way, if you've heard that word, that is the festival or the Feast of Trumpets, that is the beginning of 10 days of kind of introspection. They're the 10 days between kind of New Year's Day and the Day of Atonement, okay? And we're gonna talk about that one next. But those 10 days are a 10-day period where we're supposed to really focus on all the bad stuff we've done and, and truly repent, to really just get it out. We're supposed to look inward and figure out all the sin in our lives so that we can get it out in the open, repent of it, and hopefully move on. Now, the Jews, of course, um, they think they're supposed to repent of their sins, and they try to do good deeds to, like, make up for. And I just think it's funny how we do that. People, we do that. We have to add to it. It's always about works somehow for us. Even though the Bible doesn't say that, the Jews have added that to what they were supposed to do. All right? But we can use this 10-day period of reflection as well. Now, we don't have to do good works to make up for it. That's not how our salvation works. We know that. But there is nothing wrong with spending some time, just like David prayed, God, search my heart. Help me know what I need to change in my life. Okay? But that rolls us into the Day of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur. You've probably heard of that before. It's the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. 
And of course, it includes a holy convocation and it includes a Sabbath. But this day is really pretty simple to understand. It was the day when the, the sins that we've been thinking about for the last 10 days, we would offer them up to God and God would hopefully forgive us. Okay? And so, so this atonement process, this cleansing process, had a, had a very specific ritual that went along with it. And it's in Leviticus 16, if you want to look it up. Um, but there was some very specific sacrifices that Aaron, originally Aaron and Moses, would have to make. And Aaron would have to, he'd have to put on like some special clothes. He'd have to, to wash himself a certain way. He'd have to get certain sacrifices ready. There was a ram, there was a couple of goats. And, and he had to do everything just perfect. In fact, God actually told Moses, hey, if Aaron does this wrong, he's gonna die. Wow, okay. I guess I'm sure Moses is like, hey, <laughs> Pay attention. Your life depends on it, right? So this was a really big deal. God was really serious about this. And he had all these rituals that he would have to go through. And they would, they would sacrifice the ram. And, and Aaron would he'd do a certain set of rituals for, for first to ask forgiveness for his own family. And then he would do it for Israel. And, and I'm not going to get into all of that. But what's really interesting is that these two goats, one of them would be a sacrifice. But the other one would take on all the sin of Israel. So the idea was they've been, they've been identifying for 10 days all of the sin that they have committed. They've asked God for forgiveness for it. Now the priest would put all that sin on the goat. And then they would take the goat. And the idea was that goat would then be walked out of Jerusalem. And they would literally walk it like 10 miles away. And the idea was that all of the sin was there. And as the goat went away, the sin was leaving Israel. All right, so you can kind of see the, the picture that's being painted. But they started to get worried because they, they would take this goat. And when they would get to the like 10 mile mark, and by the way, they literally like set up little refreshment stands for the, the guy who went to walk the goat out of town, like every mile, he'd get like, I don't, I don't know, like a Dr. Pepper and a Snicker bar, I don't know, whatever they gave him. And he'd go on for another mile. And when they got to 10 mile mark, he'd then just stand and watch the goat walk away. Well, they started to worry. What happens if the goat comes back? And they also were like, you know, is God accepting our Sacrifice? Is he really pleased with us or, or not? So they started to add to the tradition. And the first thing they did is they, they started tying a red ribbon around the goat's neck. Okay. And the idea was if the, if the ribbon turns white, God's pleased with our sacrifice. And if it stays red, he's not pleased with our sacrifice. Well, apparently... God obliged them because every year they would walk this goat out of town and the ribbon would actually either turn white or it would stay red. And if it stayed red, they were like, oh, that's not good. And so they would literally mourn the whole year. Like God didn't accept our sacrifice. He's not forgiven us of our sins. It's a pretty big deal. This was the one day of the year they could be forgiven, right? This is the only day that the priest could do this once a year. That was it. 
So then they're like, well, you know, we're really worried this goat's going to come back one day. So they changed the ribbon to a rope, all right? And they use it like a leash. And now they still do the 10 miles. And if, if God was pleased, the rope would turn white. And if he wasn't pleased, the rope would stay red. But they said, you know, we don't, we don't want the goat to come back. So instead of leading it to the edge in the, of the wilderness and letting it go, they would actually take the goat after the 10 mile mark over to a cliff and throw the goat off a cliff. It ain't coming back. All right, and they were like gonna make absolutely sure the goat didn't come back. They would literally throw the goat off a cliff. Which I think is hilarious. So, um, there was a couple things that were interesting to me. One is the 40 years previous to Jesus showing up on the scene, the rope stayed red. Not one time did the rope turn white for 40 years before Jesus' death on the cross. You would think that would have been a red flag, literally, that something's not right. But I love how they added to God's plan, right? As if God hadn't thought of something. Like, hey, we're smarter than you, God. We, you know, we're, we've thought this through, and we think you missed this. And what's funny is Christians do the exact same thing. Where do you think infant baptism came from? It's not in the Bible anywhere. Like 400 years after Jesus, somebody went, you know, what if? What if a baby dies, not baptized? We just added that. That was us. All right? Nowhere in the Bible does it say to do that. That's literally, that's us. We do exactly what, exactly what the Jews did. Just add to the story. Oh, and by the way, have you ever heard the term scapegoat? What's a scapegoat? A scapegoat is someone who's innocent, but is made to look guilty, right? That's where this term came, comes from, because the goat that they would walk out in the woods was the scapegoat. The goat didn't do anything wrong, and yet it received all the sin. <laughs> and if it was latter in the process, it actually got thrown off a cliff to boot, right? All right. So the last one I want to talk about is Shabbat, which is Sabbath. This is actually in the Bible called a holy day. This is actually a, a holiday, if you would, but it happens every single week, okay? And it contains the same two elements, a holy convocation, a gathering, a spiritual gathering, and this concept of not working. But there's really two themes to Shabbat, to remember and to observe, okay? Again, it's remembering what God has done. And specifically, six days God made the universe, and on the seventh day he rested. That's where the Sabbath day comes from. Like that's how he said it. Look, even I took a day off. I want you to take a day off. And it's partially because we make an idol of work. We get so focused on work and, our, and providing for ourselves that many of us are fearful about taking a day off because we still have work to do. And God says, no, you need to rely on me for your provision. You need to rely on me for taking care of all this stuff. So take a day off and don't just not work. I mean, that's most of us, what we think of. We think of, well, that's what they do. They don't work on the Sabbath day. 
It's true, they don't. But it's not just about not working. It's about spending time with God. They don't not work but watch the football game. That's not what Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is about spending time with your family and celebrating God. They literally take a certain part of the day and read the Torah, which is what we would call the Bible, at least the Old Testament. I mean, that's, that's what they do. That's what you're supposed to do. So we have the same opportunity. Now, Paul made it really clear in his, in his letters, we don't have to observe the holy days anymore. When Jesus came and gave himself up for us, he was the ultimate sacrifice. All of these holy days were supposed to help Israel see the Messiah when he came. We're going to just burn this into your spirit. You're going to know when Jesus comes because you're going to be looking for him because you're going to do these things over and over and over again. And we don't have to do them anymore. But just because we're no longer obliged to do them doesn't mean we don't have the opportunity to do them, especially the Sabbath day, okay? So that's what I want, I hope that you would take away from this. What God's really saying is, I want you to stop for a day, stop thinking about your life, and spend time with me. He wants personal time with you, okay? Next weekend is Easter. Easter is the day we celebrate really what they were celebrating on the Day of Atonement or looking forward to. Do we have to celebrate the Day of Atonement? We don't. We don't have to do that. But we get to. And we don't have to take a Sabbath day. But we get to. And if you've ever done it, if you've ever stopped, really stopped, and that's, what, by the way, what the words mean. It means to cease, to rest, to stop. If you've ever stopped and just spent time with God, it will make a difference for you, not just in your physical life, but in your spiritual life. So let's pray about that. Father, thank you that you have helped us to know how we can spend time with you. Because we just go, 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 and we never slow down. And Lord, you didn't put all these rules in place to harm us or even to control us, but rather to love on us and to help us and to get to know us. Lord, we can't get to know you. We can't hear your still, small voice if we don't spend time with you. So thank you for the opportunity to spend time with you. And it's not just us that are making that decision. When we stop, your word says you stop with us. And you don't just hear us, but you dwell with us. Can't imagine why you would do that, but I am so thankful that you do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So how are you doing taking time with God? Because that's really what this was about. Are you spending quality time with God? Is that something you need to be more intentional about? Um, could celebrating the holy days help you to do that? And I think the question really is, 
If you're having a conversation with Jesus right now, is he pleased with how much time you're spending with him alone? Okay? Maybe it's time for you to acknowledge, and I just feel honestly that somehow, some way, uh, either on the Zoom tonight or at some point, um, somebody of Jewish background is going to watch this. And for you, I would ask, is it time for you to see the Messiah that you've been looking for all these years? Because he is right there, right behind you, knocking on your door, asking you to answer. If that's you and you need help uh, understanding how, who Jesus is and how this whole thing works, please reach out to us here at the church. We would love to help you through that process. All right, home groups, uh, now's the time to download the call to action questions, which are in your study guide. Uh, if you're on the Zoom, stay on the Zoom. We're going to go ahead and answer them together as a group in just a couple minutes. Um, so today we learned, again, we learned how God gave us these mechanisms, these holy days, so that we could stop and spend time with him. But next week is Easter, and again, it is the one day of the year when your neighbors, your friends, your family, those who you've been thinking about inviting to church, it's the one day that they'll probably come. So next week, we're looking forward to seeing you and your friends here at Steeple's Church. Thank you for being part of the Steeple's Church family. We love you, and we'll see you next week.